Welcome to this week's Point Community Church Sunday Sermon. If you'd like to learn more about the Point Community Church, please visit our website at tpcc.org.au. Well, I don't know if you've ever been uh, on a date. Um, I heard a story uh, recently, a guy named Rory Schreiner, he's a pastor in Western Australia where the sun sets over the water, and uh, he told a story of when his children were younger, he and his wife organised a date night, and uh, they had to get a babysitter, it's quite an ordeal when you've got young kids to sort of get that time together. So they organised the babysitter, he booked the restaurant uh, somewhere with a beautiful view, uh, somewhere that made delicious food, and uh, it was all set. And they went off together, they started their meal, they were enjoying one another's company, and Rory uh, apparently likes to save the best to last, and so he was working his way across his plate Uh, leaving that most sumptuous part towards the end. At which time, his wife uh, reached over with her fork and said, do you mind if I try some of yours? And she did. And she took uh, the bits that he was saving for last. You know, he looked at her, she looked at him. She said, we're not going to fight about this, are we? And he looked at her as if to say, well, of course... Um, and I guess the night just went from bad to worse. All of this to say that we all know, intrinsically, don't we, that relationships really matter. You can have the nicest view in the world, the most delicious food, the atmosphere, but if the relationship has turned sour, As Rory said, he may as well have been eating cigarette butts off a factory floor. (laughs) It's true, isn't it? We know it's true. And if it's true on a human level with one another, how much more is it true when it comes to our relationship with God? You see, as we've been entering into this book of Romans, I think Romans has been showing us that we haven't just taken the last bit of bacon off the plate, we have taken all of the glory that belongs to God as our Creator, and we've directed it towards the creation. We've taken all of the truth about God that can be known from the natural world, His divine attributes, His eternal power, and we've suppressed it. Like Jack in the box, we've pushed it down. But it's not Jack, it's God. And like a boy in the ocean, it won't stay down. It wants to come back up, it pops up everywhere, doesn't it? Um, I was down at the beach the other day, and... um, Flynn's, uh, Isaac and Dale and I went for an early morning swim and uh, it was quite a miracle really because I caught a wave and uh, I, I was wearing a wetsuit, it was a little, that probably helped, it was a little bit more buoyant. Um, anyway, I sort of emerged out of this wave and there was a guy standing sort of knee deep in the water and he said, did you realise that as you were coming riding on that wave there were two dolphins either side? 
I had no idea. Glory. This stranger, I didn't know him from a bar of soap, was bursting with joy to tell me. And I was overjoyed as well. Wow. Glory. It's everywhere, isn't it? The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, night after night, they're speaking, revealing knowledge that there is a God, a creator, a designer. But we don't want the creator in our lives and we try to be happy without God. And so the relationship has turned sour. And God himself, this is what we've been learning in Romans, isn't it? That God is actually angry. Uh, he's revealing his wrath from heaven presently, we learned in Romans, didn't we? Um, Romans chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. He's not um, giving up on us, he's giving us over. We see that repeatedly in chapter 1, verse 24, verse 26, verse 28. He is not throwing up his hands, fed up with us, he's handing us over. Um, he's not flying off the handle, there's not that kind of anger. No, because God is kind and patient, slow to anger, in fact. And he's hoping that the pain and the hurt and the sadness that we experience in life as we try to live our lives without God might actually wake us up and lead us to repentance. You see, sin is actually its own punishment. Part of the punishment is the crime. That God would let us go, that, uh, that God would intentionally let us break ourselves against his commandments. You can't actually break his commandments, only break yourself against them. Uh, as, a, as a parent, um, we told our children not to run across the road in front of traffic. Um, the other day, yesterday, I was at Southwest Rocks and my son was climbing uh, up some rocks and I said, Be careful. I'm, I'm not just letting him go, I'm trying in love to hold him back. But God is giving us over. He's letting us go. He's letting us feel in our own bodies, Romans says, the penalty of our error, the natural consequences, if you like. I think if you understand this, it's... It's something that will make sense of your, of your world, of your experience in the world, of what you see around you. I think that this is the most compelling worldview, Romans chapter 1, that this is actually what God's doing. It's not that he's letting go, and, but actually that he's given us over. Um, but that's not enough really, is it? Because we've been learning in Romans that through the gospel... God's righteousness is revealed. And in his righteousness, he's letting us, letting us go, he's given us over uh, to, to, to sin. But that's not enough, is it? Because that just creates a world of chaos, a world of ruin, a world of hurt and pain. 
And so, secondly, not only is God's wrath being revealed presently from heaven, Romans chapter 1, but God has set a day, Romans chapter 2, when uh, a day of wrath, when his righteous judgments will be revealed. Um, in Tasmania, there's uh, way down the southwest of Tasmania, there's um, the Gordon River Dam. I don't know if any of you have ever been there. There's one road in, it's the same road out. And uh, it's actually, that lake is actually the largest lake in Australia. It's part of the hydroelectric scheme. They built this ginormous wall. And you can imagine, can't you, the, the huge body of water being held back and all that pressure on that wall, all that weight uh, waiting to be released. Um, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a, apparently a double curvature concrete arched dam. It's 140 metres tall. I don't like heights. Um, wasn't very good on that. Uh, 200 metres wide. It's huge. And that's actually the picture, isn't it, that we've been given in Romans chapter 2, um, that we are actually storing up God's wrath for a day of wrath when his righteous judgments will be revealed in a controlled spillway, yes, but in a flood that will ensure. On that day, we read in chapter 2, verse 16, God will judge the secrets of men and women by Jesus Christ. All the wrongs will be righted and all the rights will be rewarded. And God's judgment will be complete. And I say all of that really to ask the question tonight, how can we then be right with God? If that's the world we're living in, where God has given us over, if that's the future that we're heading for, when God's righteous judgments will be revealed and He'll judge the very secrets of our hearts... How can we be right with God? How can we be accepted by Him? Well, as we look at this second part of Romans 2, I want you to think of it in terms of finding your favourite socks. Um, you know, when you're going through the drawer and there's one half a pair and that's not them, and then there's that pair that have got a hole in them, that's not them. I'm looking for another pair. And you go through, and then finally you find what you're looking for. That's really, I think, what Paul's doing in the second half of Romans chapter 2. How can we be right with God? Well, it's not this, it's not that, and it's not the other. It's this, and that's what we're going to look at tonight. So, firstly, um, it's not by possessing the law. Now, that sounds a bit odd, doesn't it? Uh, how can we be right with God? Well, not by possessing the law. But you can see here that the Jews, um, that was a big thing for them. That God, uh, you know, of all the nations on the world, God had actually chosen them. And, you know, Moses uh, had the handwriting of God on the tablets and God had given his law to them and they were to be a nation like no other. And other nations would look in on them and go, wow, what a God. I wish I could be part of your nation. And then God sent prophets who spoke the word of God God filled them with his spirit and they spoke and they wrote down the words of God. And uh, it was precious to them. They had their scribes and their, um, their, their law and they would learn it and teach it. It was something that defined them. And, um, and I'm really grateful for uh, growing up in a Christian family. 
um, a huge privilege, isn't it, to have access to the Bible. Um, but here, Paul says it doesn't matter, it doesn't make any difference in terms of God's judgment. If anything, it makes it worse because now I've got a law to be judged by. But look what he says in verse 12. He says, for all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Um, verse 15. They show, this is the Gentiles, that the works of the law, the work rather, singular, of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. You see what's going on? The Jews have the word of God and the Gentiles have the works of the law written on their hearts and everyone has a conscience. Everyone has a sense of right and wrong. Everyone uh, uh, has thoughts that mostly accuse them and occasionally excuse them. And so whether you're a Jew and you hold the word of God in your hand or whether you're a Gentile and it's written, the works of the law are written on your heart, um, you're kind of in the same camp, under God's judgment. Gentiles show um, that, that the works of the law are really written on their heart because sometimes they actually do them, verse 14, and behave like God's law instructed the Jews to live. And so, it's strange, isn't it? Excuse me, the people who know nothing of the Bible, nothing of church, nothing of Christianity, nothing of God's written law, will be on the exact same footing as those who come from a Christian family, go to a Christian school, live in a Christian community and drive a Christian car and put Christian petrol in their car. And, um, you know, the, the Christian world is Christian. It doesn't actually make any difference, according to God, because we're all going to be judged, one by our conscience and the law, works of the law that are written on our heart and one by the law itself, but we're both going to be judged. There's no advantage, there's no disadvantage. It doesn't matter whether you have a really big Bible. God doesn't need to give you a Bible to condemn you. It's an interesting perspective, isn't it? Because it's actually quite a high view of secular Humanity. Humanity without God. So, there we go. doesn't matter if you possess the law. What about if you know the law really well? Well, I used to work in pathology and um, one of the areas that uh, I was trained in was the diagnosis of lung cancer. And I remember a particular session as... Um, I was learning about that. We were sitting there with four other trainees. I was the odd one out. There were all girls and there was me. Um, they all did one course. I did another course. Anyway, we all end up there learning, sitting around this multi-headed microscope, light microscope. We're all looking down at these, um, these cells, this sample of... Uh, we were looking at the small cell carcinoma of the lung. And we were looking at the necrosis, the, 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 the cell death, the debris that was in the background of this... Uh, slide that we were looking at and we were looking at the, um, the chromatin, the DNA that was multiplying out of control because it was cancerous and we were looking at uh, all of the, the clumping of that and we were seeing 
um, the, we're discussing the diagnosis. How, how much longer would this person have? You know, it's already metastatic through their body. We've caught it, the, we've only recognised it at this stage. And, uh, you know, we're, we're having a great session learning there. And then all of a sudden, the person who was leading the discussion said, we'll have to just pause there because I've got to go out for a cigarette break. <laughs> you see, it's the educational fallacy, isn't it? That our world has brought in that if only people could be educated, they would live different lives. Our communities would be different. Society would be different. We'd change. It's rubbish, isn't it? You can have all the knowledge in the world. We've got it, haven't we? At our fingertips. In our pockets. It doesn't change our hearts. We're still at war with each other, killing one another, hating one another, hurting one another. It's very easy, isn't it, to be impressed by knowledge. That's what knowledge does, it puffs up. And you can see how it shapes the way we relate to ourselves in verse 17. If you call yourself a Jew and you rely on the law, you boast in God. Which in some ways is right and proper, isn't it? They were Jews, you call yourself a Jew, I'm a Jew, and you're relying on the law, that's a good thing, I'm relying on the law and I'm boasting in God, and I know his will and I'm approving the things that are excellent, because you're instructed by the law. The law is informing me, it's good. And I'm, and, uh, I'm, I'm sure, uh, what is that? And if you are sure that you yourself are, a, well, look, at it's not just your view of yourself, but now it's your, the way you relate to other people, verse 19. Uh, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness and an instructor of the foolish and a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. And so it shapes away my identity, who I am. I, I'm someone who knows the word of God. I, uh, and um, it's how I define myself. I boast in God. I rely on the law. But then in my relationships with other people, that now changes the way that I relate to you and someone else. Because I now see myself as an instructor, someone who's teaching and leading the blind and, and guiding this person in the right way. And so it's changing the way I relate to others. But it, I can't save myself. Do you notice that? In verse 21. You then who, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, you dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. You Jews who know the law, who rely on the law, who boast on God, who teach others are bringing God's name and dragging it through the mud. What difference does it make to know your Bible? Someone said that if you educate a devil, all you get is a clever devil. And if you educate people, of course, what do you get? Just educated people, still sinful, probably better sinners, smarter at it, more cunning, more conniving. And people perhaps who think they're Christians, but drag God's name through the mud. So it's not possession of the law, it's not knowledge of the law. What about the sign of the law? Could it be that? Um, male circumcision. Strange one, isn't it? 
in the Old Testament, it was representative. I think we, we find it hard to sort of uh, grasp this idea in Western individualistic society that we have, uh, that it was representative. But I think, as, as Aussies, the best way we can get our minds around it is, is in sport, the world of sport. You know, you take your son to the soccer field, and uh, if he shoots a goal, well, the whole team celebrates. The whole team wins or loses, depending on individuals, doesn't it? And so they represent the team in that way. If the goalie lets one through, well, the whole team loses that ball. And in the Old Testament, the men were to be circumcised, representative of the whole community, men and women, as belonging to God. God's own special possession. Like the priest in the Old Testament. You remember the priest would go in and represent the people before God. And so there's this representation of belonging to God. But what Paul says here must have been really shocking. Because here are all the people who've had the operation. But look what he says to them in verse 25. For circumcision indeed is of value if, if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. Can you see the shock of that? They're actually Gentiles. You know, the Jews probably considered them as filthy. Gentiles who knew nothing of God, worshipped idols, did horrendous things like offer their children in sacrifice. Gentiles could actually condemn Jews because the law, the works of the law were written on their heart, they had a conscience and sometimes they would actually live better lives than Jews who had the law, knew the commandments and had circumcision and yet broke the law. You see, it is possible to have all the signs and yet still be under God's con condemnation. So, how can we get right with God? That's our big question. Not by possessing the law, not by knowing the law, not by the sign of the law. Paul gives us the answer. Here's the sock we're looking for. The best clue is in verse 28 and 29. Let's read that. Have a look down there with me. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is from man, his praise is not from men, I should say, or man, but from God. So what's needed is a heart operation. Something inward. Uh, my dad uh, had a heart operation a couple of years ago. Um, he got to a point where his capacity was getting more limited and, uh, you know, went in for the checks and then all of a sudden, yep, you need to go straight and get to, you know, all the valves, whatever it is they do. Um, and incredible, a new lease on life. That's what Paul is saying here, isn't he? That actually we all need a heart transplant. We can't change ourselves by just... Knowing, having the law or knowing the law or trying to do the things that show that we belong to God's people doesn't actually change us from the inside. I still can't change. 
And what Paul is talking about here is, is actually what um, Ezekiel talked about and promised and predicted and prophesied way back in Ezekiel 36, 26, where he spoke about a new covenant. There was this old covenant with the, the tablets and the law and the circumcision and knowing the law and all that kind of stuff. But there's a new covenant coming, Ezekiel said, a, a better covenant. And this is what it's about. God said, I'll give you a new heart and I'll put my, a new spirit in you. I'll remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit in you. And here's the thing that's really powerful. I will move you to follow my decrees. And even to be careful to keep them the law. See, only then, only when we've got this inner change, change from the inside out and become a new person, a heart transplant, can we have faith in God that actually leads to obedience. The obedience of faith, that's what the Apostle Paul is all about in Romans, isn't he? Right from the very start. And only then will our praise come, not from man, but from God. Because God sees secrets. And so we have to have even the insides cleansed and changed and renewed. Which is why we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper tonight. Because the Lord's Supper... When we take the cup, Paul says, it is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. In other words, the cross of Jesus has paid for a transplant for everyone here, a heart transplant. The cross of Jesus has paid for the gift of the Holy Spirit to come and live within you and transform you. And the empty tomb of Jesus says you really can have new life. I once preached a sermon uh, in a Baptist church and I suggested that they should change the sign at the front of their church from Baptist church to circumcision of the heart church. Didn't go down too well. Um, They thought it might be a bit confusing to the general public. But I thought it was a good idea. Because that's actually the important thing, isn't it? The baptisms are wonderful. There were more people who got baptised than were represented on that video. It was a wonderful time we had this afternoon. How wonderful to see people taking a step of obedience. But the thing is, we're celebrating something that God has done inside. Anyone can get wet, but only God can change people's hearts, turn their lives around and give them a faith that will lead to obedience, where we actually want to keep God's law greater than we want to live in sin. You see, that's the tension, isn't it? That's the struggle we all feel, and only God can do that. See, it is very possible, isn't it, to have all the signs of belonging, a big Bible, a big knowledge, a big baptism, but not be born again. Is that you? I want to invite you, as we partake of the Lord's Supper, if you want to say yes to Jesus, come. He invites everyone. Come to him. He won't knock you back. Come. Take the bread. The bread is, Jesus said, for you. His body, that on the cross business, was for you to pay for your sin. The blood is the blood of the covenant. 
that purchases a new heart, the Spirit of God within you that washes you clean. So come and celebrate and join in with us. If, if you're not a Christian tonight, and this is all new, maybe this is all a bit weird, it's okay. You don't have to partake. In fact, we'd encourage you not to if you're not, if you're not understanding, you're still learning, if you haven't put your trust in Jesus. But there's an opportunity now. There's, no, there's nothing like the present, is there? To put your trust in Jesus, to, to look to Him and say, I can't live the life that I, even my heart tells me I should live, let alone your law. I want to trust in Jesus' perfect life for me. I want to trust in His death for my sin. Come and take it and feed on Jesus. I'm going to pray and uh, then ask those who are helping to share, uh, dish it out, come, come and uh, um, get a cup and get some bread um, and then ca- come back to your seats and we'll, we'll have it all together. Let me pray. Father God, Father in heaven, we thank you so much, so much for your word. And Lord, we all want to confess, Lord God, that yeah, we, we fail, we fail the works of the Lord that are written on our hearts. We fail to live up to our own conscience, let alone your perfect law. And Lord, Lord God, we, we can't live lives that, that please you. We've failed on so many levels in our speech, in our attitudes, in our anger, in our bitterness, in our lust. We failed, Lord God, even the things that we should do that we haven't done. Lord God, we've failed in thought, in deed, in so many ways. Lord, we confess our sins to you and we thank you, Lord God, that if we confess our sins to you, you are faithful, you are just, you'll forgive us our sins, you'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Would you do that work tonight? By the blood of Jesus, wash us clean. Father God, we thank you so much um, for the cross of Jesus. We thank you that he stood in our place. We thank you for his body, which was given for us, for this cup that reminds us of his blood, the new covenant. Thank you, Lord, that's so much better than the old one. Please do that work in our hearts. Please renew us by your spirit. Get rid of our heart of stone and cause us, Lord God, to want to live your way. And so, Lord, change us, be at work in us. Those of us who all this is new, those of us who we've heard it a thousand times and yet we still need you. And feed us, Lord God, as we um, share together in this celebration. We pray, strengthen our faith in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week for our latest sermon, or better yet, join us live at 9.30 or 5pm Sunday. You can find all the details on our website at tpcc.org.au.